friends, I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. I sat down recently with Peter Slen of C-SPAN to discuss the life and career of Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. We focused on his celebrated and challenging book, The Common Law. The conversation was aired as part of a C-SPAN series, Books That Shaped America, which explores key works from American history that have had a major impact on society. This show was streamed live on October 16th, 2023. Enjoy the show. And welcome to Books That Shaped America, our C-SPAN series that looks at how books throughout our history have influenced who we are today. In partnership with the Library of Congress, this 10-week series looks at different eras, topics, and viewpoints. And we're glad you're joining us on this walk through history. So far in this series, we've explored America's foundation and its expansion, and we've looked at the issue of slavery. Tonight, it's a look at the development of American law through the eyes of Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. and his book, The Common Law. Written in 1881, it was unique for its time and controversial. Holmes would later go on to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court for three decades, and his words continue to influence the legal world and our lives today. Our guest tonight, to help us learn why The Common Law is a book that shaped America, is Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center. Mr. Rosen is also an author, a writer, and he clerked for Federal Appeals Court Judge Abner Vikma. Vikma. Did I get that right? Mikva. Mikva. Almost. (laughs) Sorry about that. Not at all. Jeff, welcome back to C-SPAN. What was Holmes' objective in writing The Common Law? He had come back from the Civil War, where he almost died three times. He was thrice wounded. And he went to the war full of ideals, believing in abolitionism and equality, and seeing the carnage in Antietam, where he almost died, the bloodiest day in American history. He lost all of his ideals and almost was seized with nihilism and despair. And in writing the common law, he hoped to systematize the law to come up with some way of understanding it that would give it some meaning. And he tried it a bunch of different ways and found, in going back to English law and German law and Roman law, uh, something that surprised him very much. He had thought that there was a logic to the law that developed over precedent, but he discovered that that was only part of its development. The The life of the law has not been logic but experienced. He discovered that the historical purpose of the law was balanced against its contemporary relevance. What, how did it serve society? What were the public policy reasons that people had for adopting particular rules? And the complexity and brilliance of the insight that a legal rule might be adopted for one reason hundreds of years ago, but retained for another reason today, was the core of his contribution. And probably the most famous quote from the common law, the life of the law has not been logic, it has been experience almost a a radical thought for a generation that had been raised in legal formalism, that had been taught to believe that simply by faithfully applying certain categories of law could judges 
act without uh, the intervention of policy considerations, of empirical study, and the like. And Holmes is describing the way the law actually is. And the specificity and precision of his examples stick in the mind. Let's just put one on the table because it's so striking. He says, uh, why is it that a neighbor, when uh, he um, buys a piece of land that has an easement on it, which allows you to cross the property even if you don't own it, gets to keep that easement even if the original easement owner took it without proper property rights? And Holmes says, surprisingly, the original reason of keeping the easement was that land was considered like a living thing. An easement would run with the land. The land was personified in the way they used to personify axes, which they would put on trial and punish after a crime took place. Nowadays, said Holmes, the reason to allow the easement to run is because title would be much more complicated if you, if you weren't sure whether you bought a piece of land, whether you could keep the easement. So so this uh, original personification had given way to this public policy reason, and that's why we have easements today. The Constitution at this point in 1881, 94 years old, how sophisticated was our body of law and how extensive? Constitutional law was not very well developed. The Supreme Court had struck down only two federal laws between 1803 and 1857, the famous Marbury v. Madison and Dred Scott cases, and it had decided not to apply the Bill of Rights against the states uh, after the Civil War and would take almost 100 years to do that. So as a result, uh, the Constitution wasn't fully worked out. However, this is the period where the Supreme Court begins to invoke the Constitution to strike down economic regulations, maximum wage and minimum uh, hour laws. And there's a big debate brewing about whether or not the judges are substituting their own policy preferences for that of legislatures. And Holmes, when he joins the Supreme Court, is at the center of that debate, and he draws on insights that he developed in the common law. Well, our partner in this series is the Library of Congress. And the Library of Congress in 2013 developed a list of 100 books that shaped America. And from that list, we took 10 here at C-SPAN. These are not necessarily bestsellers. They are not the best written books. They are not classics. But they are books that have had a profound impact on public policy. And that's why tonight we're looking at the common law. Well, the Library of Congress has an original 1881 version of the common law. And the library writes about this book, that this book is acknowledged as a classic of American jurisprudence. It's a unique concept. The law as a place develops and is interpreted not only based on what is written in legislation, but also based on practice and post-experience. Absolutely. Practice and post-experience. And that reminds us that the common law gave rise to what we call today legal pragmatism, the idea that the law should serve practical purposes of society that uh, current majorities actually embrace. And of course, a pragmatism embodied today on the Supreme Court by former Justice Stephen Breyer is the opposite of legal formalism uh, embodied by a justice like uh, Neil Justice Neil Gorsuch, who thinks that the law should be strictly construed in light of its text and original understanding regardless of its practical consequences. So in that sense, Holmes also was at the center of a debate that continues to this day. What was the reaction in 1881 when the common law was published? I think we could call it 
uh, respectful bewilderment. <laughs> it was it was well acclaimed, well received. It was delivered as a series of lectures, which were well attended, and everyone acknowledged that Holmes had made a deep and real contribution to the systematizing of the law and exacted profound truths from its history. But from the very beginning, many people found it tough reading, and therefore perhaps it was more praise than read. Jeff Rosen, is the common law still taught in law school? Uh, it's assigned. How, how closely <laughs> it's taught, I don't know. I have to fess up at this point. I, I had it assigned in law school. I still remember the copy that I had. It had a brown paperback cover with a gavel on it, so I must have been assigned it at some point. And I must have tried to make my way through it, but I don't remember a word of it. So it wasn't until you gave me this homework assignment of talking about the common law that I set out to, to reread it and... I, I found it as, as arduous, although rewarding, as many people have before. Um, so there, therefore, it, it definitely took some close reading. But I, I think it's just an example of the fact that it's, it's a book that's much respected, but, but not always closely studied. Why is it arduous reading? Well, it's, it's an interesting question why it's arduous, because it's, it's, it's beautifully written, and it has pithy aphorisms, which, I, I, which live in the mind. Um, it, it's arduous because of the nuance and specificity of its parsing of history and public policy, and also because it's essentially a, a hornbook of private law, uh, torts and contracts and easements and bailments, uh, many of these causes of actions which have been lost to history and which are very fact-specific. And although Holmes extracts general principles he doesn't do so in a way that is uh, heavy-handed or, or designed to um, uh, stick in the mind. So I, it's, it's a very unusual book, even in describing, in answering your question. I, I, th I think it's completely unique in its combination of clarity and opacity. Does it hold up today? Well, it's, it's central insight that law has been shaped more by current public policy and pragmatic concerns than by historical or formal rules descriptively seems correct as a matter of much of legal history. And in fact, uh, the book went on to influence the legal realist school of the 20th century, uh, which, which agreed with Holmes that uh, judges are essentially balancing policy considerations rather than just being ground by formal rules. It influenced the law and economics movement. Judge Richard Posner, a leader of that movement, uh, held Holmes up as a, as a hero. Judge Guido Calabresi, uh, who one of my teachers in law school, also embraced it. Um, at the same time, it's, it's hotly contested. And, and as I said, the, the Supreme Court right now uh, has a majority of, of formalists, of strict constructionists, who would entirely reject Holmes's premise. For, 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 for conservatives today, Holmes is, is something of a, a dangerous radical or a cynic who, who didn't believe in law, who thought that it was policy-soaked. And in addition, Holmes's approach to the Constitution, which was radical deference, basically he thought the judges should almost never strike down laws unless people of different perspectives overwhelmingly would agree that the law was unconstitutional. This came from his profound skepticism and humility, a desire not to impose his own views on the country. That deference doesn't have much of a constituency among liberals or conservatives on the 
court today. So, so once again, uh, tremendously influential, but not always followed. The law embodies the story of a nation's development, Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote in The Common Law, through many centuries, and it cannot be dealt with as if it contained only the axioms and corollaries of a book of mathematics. Mm, beautiful. It's, it's, uh, our, our history is the story of our development, but th- the development changes and historical purposes change, and the law lives uh, he, he was not a believer in the dead hand of the past. He, he said history is a living thing, and therefore you can't understand law by just looking at the axioms. You've got to look at what actually happened. So the contemporary argument, the, doc, uh, the Constitution is a living document, etc.? Yes. Now, of course, as always with Holmes, uh, it's complicated because he recognized the complexity. And by saying that the Law is a living document. He, he didn't by any means say it was up to judges to just make up whatever they thought was good policy and do that. Uh, he was very attentive to who was best equipped to ensure that the law lived. And, and his, his great insight that we just have to keep returning to because it was so profoundly true, the Constitution is made for people of fundamentally differing points of view. Isn't that a beautiful sentiment in these polarized times when people are so convinced, my way or the highway? But he saw the Constitution and the law as a framework for peacefully resolving disagreements because after the Civil War, he thought if you didn't allow the law to resolve those disagreements, open violence would result. And it was that attentiveness to uh, pluralism and deliberation that made him think judges were not the most important people in developing the law. Legislators uh, generally should should... Uh, take the first uh, crack at it. Um, and that's why he, he can't be caricatured as just a, a dead hand guy or a living constitution guy. Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. was born in 1841 in Boston, graduated Harvard in 1861, Civil War service, 1861 to 65. He wrote the common law in 1881, and he was chief justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Court for three years prior to being appointed by Teddy Roosevelt to the Supreme Court, where he served for 30 years, and he died three years after his Supreme Court service ended in 1934. Well, author Stephen Budiansky is a biographer of Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., and here he is talking about Mr. Holmes and his importance in American jurisprudence. He was buried at Arlington Cemetery in March 1935 on the day that would have been his 94th birthday. But not only that, he did enough in those almost 94 years to fill four or five normal people's lives. As a young Union officer in the Civil War right out of Harvard, he saw almost every major battle that the Army of the Potomac fought in the first three years of the war. He was wounded seriously three times, twice nearly fatally. As a pioneering legal scholar, he wrote what is still considered one of the most important and significant books in the history of legal scholarship, The Common Law. And it wasn't only a milestone in legal scholarship. It was one of the most important intellectual achievements in any field by an American in the 19th century. It really helped 
put American scholarship on the map. It earned the great respect of British scholars who said America is beginning to surpass Britain. That's Stephen Budiansky, a biographer of Oliver Wendell Holmes. And if you'd like to learn more about the life of Oliver Wendell Holmes, our companion podcast to this program was an interview with Mr. Budiansky. You can see the little QR code on the screen right now. Go ahead and get your phone out. We'll leave it up long enough so you can get the phone out and click that and you can listen to the companion podcast. Jeff Rosen, he talked about the importance of this book. Was this a book that had a delayed reaction and a delayed influence in American history? Um, I, I, I think it was. And I want to say uh, right off that Stephen Budiansky's biography of Holmes is just wonderful. It's accessible. It's readable. It's deep. It's vivid. It's true. So if, if listeners want an introduction to Holmes and aren't quite ready to jump into the common law, which of course they, they should read as well. Uh, the Budiansky biography is just great. It, it did have a delayed reaction. Um, and and Stephen Budiansky is correct that um, English legal scholars acclaimed it and Boston lawyers. But I wasn't until after Holmes joined the Supreme Court and became such a revered figure and had a constituency uh, that was rooted in the, at the New Republic magazine, where I was the legal editor many, many years ago as well, with people like Felix Frankfurter and Learned Hand, uh, basically as full-time cheerleaders for Holmes, that he became not just a legal scholar or a judge, but really a myth, the Yankee from Olympus. And then, of course, his, his common law became all the more interesting, and it, it really found its greatest audience then. Books That Shaped America is the series, and tonight it's The Common Law by Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. We want to hear from you. Get your questions and comments ready for Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center. 202 is the area code 748-8920. If you live in the East and Central time zones, 748-8921. For those of you in the Mountain and Pacific time zones, and if you want to send a text message, Please include your first name and your city if you would, and you can send it to this number, 202-748-8003. We'll begin taking those in just a few minutes. Jeff Rosen, we mentioned that you are also an author, and you've just finished your eighth book. What is it? I'm so excited to share it with you. It's called The Pursuit of Happiness, How Classical Writers on Virtue Inspired the Lives of the Founders and Defined America. And over COVID, I decided to read the books on Thomas Jefferson's reading list that he said inspired his understanding of the pursuit of happiness. And these are stoic philosophers like Seneca and Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus, as well as Enlightenment philosophers like John Locke and Francis Hutcheson. And what I read came as a revelation. For Jefferson and the other founders, happiness wasn't feeling good, it was being good. It was the pursuit of virtue, not the pursuit of pleasure. And then I set out to see how they applied this in their lives and was struck that they thought constantly about their efforts to achieve mental self-mastery, uh, tranquility, to use their powers of reason to overcome their unreasonable passions and emotions so they could be their best self and serve others. It was just a, a wonderful opportunity to try to travel into the minds of the framers, and I'm so excited to share it. Is it accessible? To the average reader like myself. <laughs> I, I hope so. That was the goal. I was delighted that some 
readers uh, who I really respected. Gordon Wood said it was the the, uh, the, be- the, be- the most readable and perhaps the best introduction to the ideas of the founders. And the idea was to share this quest that I had that I didn't even expect to get. It was an unusual practice to wake up every morning before sunrise and read these books of moral philosophy that I'd never encountered. In in my wonderful liberal arts education, I've been so privileged to learn from great teachers at great universities. I just missed these basic works of moral philosophy that were at the core of the reading of, of kids and adults throughout the 19th and even early 20th century, fell out of the curriculum when I was in college. And just um, they, they were so illuminating and so changed the way I thought about the founders and about how to live that the goal of the book is just to, sh- to share the books and the, uh, and the light with others and hope that other people will be inspired to read them too. Did the title come first or did the title follow the writing, The Pursuit of Happiness? Well, the title came first because the, the, the book is a goal to figure out what exactly did the founders mean by that famous phrase. And to my great surprise, there's, there's not that much writing about this. Many people assume that Jefferson subbed out the pursuit of happiness for property as synonyms. But in fact, he subbed it out for a technical reason. Property was considered an alienable natural right, and the pursuit of happiness was unalienable. But this idea of the pursuit of happiness as the pursuit of, of virtue, um, which the founders talked about constantly, and the, and the sources that they drew on talk about constantly, and they include not only those philosophers, but legal writers like Blackstone or uh, religious writers like Wollaston and other names we haven't heard of. Constantly, all these people use the phrase the pursuit of happiness, and they're always talking about it as a, a, a quest for emotional self-mastery. So it was a, a combination of, of sort of de, 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 a textual detective work to figure out where this phrase came from, to see how it was used in the source material, but most importantly, how it applied in the founders' lived lives, how they lived up to its ideals or not, um, how they talked about them and chastised themselves for for not uh, being virtuous enough, and what it can teach us today. Well, we look forward to seeing that in February of 2024, The Pursuit of Happiness. But now back to 1881 and the common law and Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. Let's give you a snapshot of what America was like in 1881. There were three presidents that year. Rutherford B. Hayes, James Garfield, and Chester Arthur. The population, a little bit more than 50 million people. At least 20 law schools were in operation. The first woman to practice law, 1869, Mm. and Reconstruction was going on at that time. Mm. Did that affect his career, the Civil War service? Did it affect his career throughout his life and Reconstruction? You know, this, of course, is the central development in American constitutional law. And Holmes's colleague, John Marshall Harlan, was centrally affected by his Civil War experience. And it was Harlan who wrote the famous dissenting opinion in Plessy versus Ferguson, which objected to separate but equal, and also objected to the court's efforts to strike down landmarks of Reconstruction, including the Civil Rights Act of 1875. By the time Holmes joined the court... Reconstruction had been ended by the infamous Compromise of 1876. Troops had been withdrawn from the South. So Holmes didn't have the opportunity to pass on the central landmarks of Reconstruction. But he did, in his service, acquiesce in some very shameful opinions that thwarted the goals of Reconstruction, including Giles v. Harris, which allowed Alabama essentially to disenfranchise all black people 
simply by using ruses like literacy tests and poll taxes. And this is an example of Holmes's radical deference and realism in its darker side. Holmes said, well, if the claim is that Alabama's perpetrating a fraud on black voters, we, the court, don't want to be a party to the fraud by trying to stop it and ordering the enfranchisement of one or two people. But then he said more uh, directly, if relief is going to come practically, it's going to have to come from the political branches because we judges are powerless to change this. So that reminds us that, that Holmes, in his great devotion to deference and to allowing majorities to work their will in the political process, was not a vigorous enforcer of constitutional rights for most of his service until it came to the First Amendment. And we can talk about what changed his mind when it came to free speech and led him late in his career to write some of the greatest and most shining paeans to free expression in all of American legal history. But for much of the court, he was very deferential. And we will get to some of those those positions a little bit later in the program. But we want to hear from Carol in Elgin, Texas first. Hi, Carol. Hey, thank you, C-SPAN, for taking my call, and thank you for the program. It's really, really enjoyable. Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. was a was a guy who fought in the Civil War and, and uh, fought for the country and, and turned out to be a great justice. But I wanted to ask you two questions. One was, supposedly Holmes was so brilliant that he would find the decision he, he thought was correct, and then he would go back and find the legal basis to support his decision. And he was very good at doing that, and I wanted your opinion on that. And the, the second thing is you talked about other decisions he made. In your opinion, was his worst decision Buck v. Bell? Hmm. And uh, that's the only Carol, are, questions I have. Carol, we've yes, got to ask you a question first. Are you a lawyer? Uh, no, sir, I'm not. I'm a mechanic. <laughs> but Oliver Wendell Holmes has fascinated you, huh? I, I read a book that's called. Uh, I hate to. I don't want to talk about other books, but I read a book by Louis Manan that mm. won the Pulitzer, I think. Yeah. Called uh, the Metaphysical Club, and uh, they talk a great deal. He's one of the four main characters in the book. Carol, and thank it, you for calling in. We really appreciate it. We'll hear from Jeff Rosen now. Wonderful. So great. You were inspired by Louis Manan's book to learn more about Holmes and, and two really important questions. Did he come up with the reason, but with the result and and reason backward? I, I don't think that's quite fair to him. One of his greatest dissents, and check it out because it's so it's short and it's inspiring. It's in the Lochner case. He's dissenting from the court's decision to strike down maximum hour laws in New York. And he says, famously, the Constitution does not enact Mr. Herbert Spencer's social statics, by which he means it's this arresting citation to a social Darwinist who thinks that uh, laissez-faire economics is correct. And, and But Holmes says, you know, the Constitution is not meant to embody my ideas of good economics or any particular judges. It's made for people of fundamentally differing points of view. And therefore, I think his, his basic instinct was to defer as long as he thought a reasonable person could embrace the result. So in Lochner, he says, I may not agree with these maximum hour laws. In fact, he didn't. He himself was a, quite a laissez-faire guy. But because a reasonable legislator could believe that, then he would uphold it. In fact, Holmes was um, not a Jeffersonian majoritarian in the sense that he didn't think the majority would always come up with good results. He famously said to his sister, um, I, if my fellow citizens want to go to hell, I'll help them. It's my job. 
uh, even as he went on at one point to say, I loathe the thick-fingered clowns we call the people. I mean, he was a more extreme kind of aristocratic disdain for majorities, but he said the alternative was violence. So that's a, that's a way of trying to answer your really important question to say, generally he thought, I'm not going to do what I think is the right answer. I'm going to defer to majorities as long as a reasonable person could uh, do it. And then he had another test, which is really memorable. He said, I'll uphold a law unless it makes me puke. And, you know, that's a vivid way of putting it, but it kind of summed up his idea. There were certain can't helps, as he put it. A judge can't help strike something down, and, and he would do that, but nothing more. That leads to Buck v. Bell, which is, of course, such an important question. As you suggest, it was an infamous decision um, upholding mandatory sterilization laws or eugenic laws mandating the sterilization of so-called imbeciles. And far from being an imbecile, Carrie Buck in that case was... Uh, wrongly identified as being mentally challenged and was sterilized without her knowledge or uh, consent. And the Supreme Court, in a decision written by Holmes, with a single dissenter, it was an eight-to-one decision, upholds these laws. The only dissenter was Justice Butler, a a conservative Catholic, who found that these laws offended his sense of natural law and, and morality. What's so striking and jarring about Holmes's decision is not only did he uphold the law because he disagreed with it, in this case he actually agreed with the law. He wrote to his friend Harold Lasky the next day, this morning I upheld the law mandating the sterilization of imbeciles. Nothing I've done all week has given me so much pleasure. So when he said in those memorable, infamous words, it's better for all the world if instead of continuing to propagate their kind, we cut the fallopian tubes of imbeciles Three generations of imbeciles is enough. Something, you know, just shocking. He, he, he himself was an enthusiastic eugenicist. I'll just say one more thing that in those days, eugenics was popular among many progressives of all stripes, including progressive religious denominations. It was a kind of techno-positivism of its day, a good reminder that our beliefs about, uh, you know, perfectibility through technology often lead to results that future generations find shocking. But Holmes was a eugenicist and he upheld those laws the only thing to say in his defense as a justice is he upheld laws he liked like the eugenic laws or he upheld laws that he hated like protections for so-called anarchists and communists because of his general commitment to radical deference again our partner in books that shaped america is the library of congress and in fact they have a holmes library room over at the library here's a brief tour Hello, my name is Ryan Reft. I'm the historian in the Manuscript Division of the Library of Congress, where I oversee collections printed to 20th and 21st century domestic policy and politics, which includes law and includes our collections of federal judges and Supreme Court justices. Now, while we do not have the papers of Oliver Wendell Holmes, we are standing in his library right now, which is now located at the Library of Congress, but it was originally from his Washington, D.C. home. It contains 12,000 books, He had uh, another library at his home in Massachusetts, but this is the largest of the two. Uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes was possibly one of the most famous jurists on the Supreme Court in the 20th century. He served from 1902 to 1932, uh, and he wrote the book The Common Law on display here. The Common Law was published in 1881 and is a product of his intellectual thought uh, after he served in the Civil War, finished at Harvard, and then had been lecturing at Harvard for a number of years. The main item on display here is his black book. 
What this is, is a compendium of every book he read from 1881 to his death in 1935. And it connects to all these items on the table in that it kind of gets at the intellectual world that Oliver Wendell Holmes created uh, when he wrote The Common Law, which at its heart basically says that judges, uh, it's a judicial text that more or less says that judges and policymakers must find a way to balance what one historian called failing precedents or precedents that maybe did not prove durable over time with law that sometimes in its uh, creation was not transparent and was somewhat opaque, and that good men and women had to find a way to take both failing precedent from the past and modern policy and mend them together to make a law that worked for the nation and people on a regular basis and was rational. Uh, and what's interesting about this page in the Black Book is that you see Agatha Christie's on here three times, you see Dashiell Hammett, you even see Virginia Woolf, uh, I only I only mention that because in this account by Lockwood, his final paragraph, he talks about how he had been reading uh, Leslie Stevens' life and letters at the time, and he and how the justice used to describing alpine trips with Stevens and the talk of others. Uh, why I say that is because Leslie Stevens was Virginia Woolf's father, and Ol- Oliver Wendell Holmes, when he produces the Common Law, is in a world in which he knows he knows Henry James, he knows Leslie Stevens. Uh, he knows all these folks, or Stephens, he knows all these folks who are engaged in this thought uh, that in transforming the 19th century into the 20th. Uh, and I just finished this with a, a letter from his nephew. Oliver Wendell Holmes never had children. Some historians maintain because the horror of the Civil War uh, kind of put him off of bringing life into this world that he obviously felt was flawed. Uh, and yet, in this letter, uh, Edward, who is his nephew, has been bequeathed through the will, in 1935, 100 books from this library that we're standing in now. And he writes to Tommy Corcoran, who is one of, one of the individuals who stayed close to Holmes in his life, and he says, I have under his will the right to choose 100 books. I want to choose the books that touched his mind and his heart, and I don't think anyone knew him better than you. So again, even in death, people are thinking about what he thought about, the books he read, the ideas he promoted, and the thoughts that he put forth into American life and American law. And that was the Holmes Library at the Library of Congress. Jeff Rosen, you and I were reading names off that list, weren't we? So exciting to see 1933, two years before he dies, he's still learning and growing. That's the most impressive and inspiring thing about him. He he would have his clerks read to him. Uh, he'd have to choose between murder mysteries like Agatha Christie and things that would improve his mind like Aristotle. And sometimes he'd say, oh, let's just have a little murder. I mean, he, he, he liked entertainment as much as anyone, but just constantly stretching himself. He felt it was his duty ever since he began as a law student where he was most distinguished for his incredible work ethic and ability just to focus and read. He kept it out throughout his life. And look at that inspiring result. Charles in Brooklyn texts in, hello, anyone who follows the court today knows about judicial philosophies, originalist, textualist, etc. Did anyone think in terms of judicial philosophy in Holmes' era? And if so, how would he be characterized? Great question. And uh, they certainly didn't think about it in as systematic a way as we do now, and, and judges were not appointed based on their uh, judicial philosophies in the same way. He, our, our modern phrase for him would be a, a, a pragmatist, a, a realist, and, and Justice Breyer, as I said, would be his heir. Um, there were strict 
constructionists uh, back then, uh, who he was strongly opposed to, um, like James McReynolds, who thought that the text of a statue should be read uh, regardless of its consequences. So to that degree, he, he anticipates our current debates. And the debate about whether judges should be deferential to legislators or uh, second-guess them uh, was incredibly hot and became the center of the progressive era debates about the role of the court. It was it defined the debates during uh, the presidencies of Taft and Wilson, and of course culminated in the court-packing efforts of the New Deal. And at that point, Holmes's pragmatic deference was embraced by justices like Felix Frankfurter and Hugo Black and the FDR appointees who saw Holmes as their patron saint for opposing the judicial invalidation of economic legislation. So uh, that's a long way of saying that although the categories of the methodologies weren't as clear as they are now, there were definitely strong debates about how to interpret the Constitution, and Holmes was at the center of them. Another quote from the common law, state interference is an evil where it cannot be shown to be a good. Mm. It's just there's nothing simplistic about his aphorisms, and it's so this wonderful it's it's almost like a legal confucius you know it recognizes this paradox and it's it also captures this profound truth it might be seen to be an evil and historically perhaps was seen to be an evil unless society at the moment decides that there might be some justification for it which reminds us to reject moral absolutes holmes did not believe that the law uh, was a brooding omnipresence in the sky as he put it that embodied absolute moral principles. He thought that its needs changed based on the needs of society. And that's why one of the central debates of the common law was whether or not you needed to be morally blameworthy before you could be punished. And Holmes said, no, it was more important to punish people based on whether or not society as a whole would benefit regardless of whether they were morally blameworthy. And all of those reflections are just captured by that one aphorism. So suddenly I'm understanding why that I was having trouble articulating the combination of this incredibly pithy, memorable phrases and the uh, uh, opacity and obscurity. They really are like um, uh, little uh, prayers of law, little aphoristic um, sayings like something out of the Bhagavad Gita or the, or the Buddha that encapsulate truths in this compressed poetic form. Um, that are so much deeper than they appear at first. Tom is in Minneapolis. Tom, you're on C-SPAN. Our guest is Jeff Rosen of the National Constitution Center. Hi, thanks so much for having the program. Uh, Professor Albert Ushler, or Ashler, I might be mispronouncing that, wrote a book called Law Without Values, and he attacks Holmes, saying that basically Holmes was wrong to argue that morality and law should be kept separate, He's not the only legal scholar that said that, and uh, Buck versus Bell is probably the best example where he uh, said three generations of imbeciles aren't enough and ruled in favor of the sterilization of a mentally impaired woman. So I'd like your uh, comments on what you think of that criticism of Holmes, where he tries to keep morality and law separate. Thank Thank you, you. Tom. Great uh, reference to Albert Alshuler's really important book, Law Without Values. I think I reviewed that book for the New York Times many years ago when it came out and remember how struck I was by Al Schuller's thesis that you perfectly summarized that Holmes uh, was a nihilist who didn't believe in law at all. And it was Al Schuller who taught me that far from reluctantly upholding those Buck v. Bell laws, Holmes was enthusiastic about it. That quote that I 
was remembering about uh, Holmes saying, you know, nothing gave me so much pleasure is from Alshuler. And Alshuler further describes how radically the war deprived Holmes not only of faith in abolitionist values, but of any values whatsoever. He became, according to Alshuler, a kind of Nietzschean nihilist who looked down on the masses with aristocratic disdain and yet thought that they had to be deferred to or open violence would result. I I have to say that um, although I I found Alshuler's thesis uh, striking or jarring really when when I first read it, there's much to be said for it. I mean, that wasn't all of Holmes. He wasn't purely uh, cynical, and his humility, his skepticism, his openness to lifelong learning, and ultimately his refusal to believe that he was God, as he put it so memorable. Well, Sonny, one thing I learned, he told one of his law clerks when he was old, is that I'm not God. All makes him far more than simply the the nihilist who would uphold the sterilization laws. But Alshuler captures an important part of Holmes's legacy. Well, here's biographer Stephen Budiansky on Oliver Wendell Holmes again. As oft noted as the justice's mental and physical vigor was his extraordinary embodiment of the sweep of history. As a Union officer in the Civil War, he had barely escaped death at Ball's Bluff and Antietam when musket balls tore through his chest and neck, missing heart, spine, and carotid artery by an eighth of an inch. He had spoken to Grant and shaken hands with Meade at the Battle of Spotsylvania. He had seen Lincoln dodge enemy fire at Fort Stevens during Jubal Early's raid on Washington. As a boy, he knew Ralph Waldo Emerson as a family friend and dimly remembered Herman Melville, a summer neighbor, as a rather gruff, taciturn man. Traveling Europe after the war, he climbed the Alps with Leslie Stephen, better known to later generations as the father of Virginia Woolf. While in law school, he became fast friends with Henry James and his brother William, soon to become, respectively, the novelist and philosopher of their generation. To Holmes, they were Harry and Bill. On visits to England, he met John Stuart Mill, the young Winston Churchill, and the old Anthony Trollope, In Washington, Bertrand Russell stopped by more than once to talk philosophy. A quiz show in the 1960s posed the question, which American met, during his lifetime, both John Quincy Adams and Alger Hiss? Well, the answer, of course, was Holmes, who had met the sixth president of the United States, another family friend of his Boston boyhood, when he was five years old, and who had employed the future Soviet spy as one of his last law secretaries in 1929. But it was the Civil War that was his touchstone. I hate to read about those days, he told friends. He had no interest in reliving the war's squalid preliminaries or the blunders and worse of the battles. Jeff Rosen, when we were talking earlier, I think I used the phrase, you don't come any waspier than Oliver Wendell Holmes. Is that a correct sum up? I think he sets the gold standard. Uh, we, we heard about his incredible friends uh, as, as Boston blue blood, as you could imagine. William James, who's discussed in the metaphysical club that we were talking about earlier, had an amazing line about Holmes when he was young. He was like a machine planing a deep and self-beneficial groove through life, was, was William James's take on him. Um, his father was uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., 
the autocrat of the breakfast table. He was a writer for The Atlantic, a, the kind of a Jerry Seinfeld of his day, who would write these amusing, entertaining essays about daily life that were the core of Boston Brahmin society and were widely read throughout America in this new Atlantic magazine. Now, the father kind of embarrassed Holmes when he got uh, older. Holmes was a very deep and serious intellectual, and he thought there was something frivolous about his dad's poetry, which was widely read in his day, and also his kind of amusing essays. And significantly, we were talking about the Civil War, Holmes is thrice wounded. He's, he's, he's left for dead nearly three times. But the father has pledged to write about him for the Atlantic. So he kind of takes off for the battlefield and is writing articles, hawking his journey to go find his son while Wendell is dying in the hospital. And, and the son thought that he was, the father was basically exploiting him to get some good Atlantic pieces out of it. It's just a fascinating class. He also respected his father and revered him and so forth. But both the combination of competition and also uh, the new media technologies uh, clashing with Holmes's desire to transform the law were all played out in this really interesting waspy edible conflict. Steve is in St. Louis. Steve, good evening to you. Good evening, gentlemen. Great show. It's just um, I'm learning so much. Um, I was going to ask Mr. Rosen, um, when your book comes out next winter, will it be available in in like uh, Amazon and and kind of, kind of easy to to obtain. Thank thank you for asking and, and th- thanks to Peter for letting me plug it. Yes, indeed, you can pre-order it on Amazon right now. Uh, we're, we'll will be in uh, Audible and, and it'll be available in all platforms. Please please check it out. I'd, I'd love to share it with you. The Pursuit of Happiness. It's called Steve. Did you have a follow up question? I do. My great great grandfather fought in the Civil War on and in the army of the Ten- army of the Tennessee and he became a lawyer after the war and became a prosecuting attorney. Um, I was just, I don't know if, if, if there's some kind of correlation with that. Um, a lot of, a lot of veterans went on to, uh, a- a- appreciate the law and, uh, just, I'm 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 struggling how to put this. No, I think um, I, I think I got it, Steve. Yeah, they, Thank they, you for that, yeah. Jeff. Did you get what he was talking Completely. about? Completely. Well, first yeah. of all, you know what what an honor to uh, remember your 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 your, your grandfather's service. And um, for Holmes, it, it was the war that crystallized his belief that law was the only thing standing between us and barbarism. I mean, the law was so brutal. It was so, the human carnage was so overwhelming to those who experienced it that he he felt that unless we upheld the rule of law, that people would destroy each other. It very profoundly influenced his sensibility. Uh, I could well see how it could lead someone to want to be a prosecutor and and to enforce the law. The other thing that the war did for Holmes is made him a complete devotee of the Union. He was a fierce partisan of the United States of America. He actually would put on his Civil War uniform once a year, almost until he died. He fit into it and he would, on on, uh, an anniversary of the battle, would dress up in his uniform, which which still had his blood marks on it. And when he died, he gave all of his money, I think, or most of it, to the United States because uh, he thought that that was his patriotic duty. 
and the Holmes Devise is a series that the Library of Congress publishes today with the money that Holmes gave because he was so devoted to the Union. And to make things even uh, uh, more timely, the latest volume in the Holmes Devise is just about to be published by the great Robert Post, a Yale law professor. We're going to hold an NCC um, uh, book talk with with Robert Post for his volume of the Holmes Devise on the Taft Court. But all, all this is bringing home the, the, the fact that you're, you're – grandfather might well have taken from his service a devotion to the union and to the law, as Holmes did. Well, one of the things we like to do on this series is show you teachers who are teaching about the books that we are talking about in the series. And if you go to our website, uh, cspan.org slash books that shaped America, you will see up there at the top a tab that says teacher resources. If you go on that tab, you will get lesson plans, you will see videos, etc., about each of the books that we're looking at. Well, one of the teachers who teaches about Oliver Wendell Holmes and the common law is Effie Guerra Pujol, who teaches at the University of Central Florida. How can we make the common law, how can we make Oliver Wendell Holmes's book from 1881, The Common Law, relevant today? Well, consider some of the most cutting-edge technologies uh, today. Consider, for example, generative AI uh, systems, gen AI, or autonomous vehicles, or unmanned aerial vehicles as well, uh, 3D printing, right? When I discuss these areas with my students, oftentimes students say, wow, there needs to be federal regulation. Or in the case of AI, artificial intelligence, ideally it would be great if there were sort of an international treaty that the world could get behind and we could put um, safeguards but what happens when there is no federal regulation of a specific activity or industry or area of life? What happens when there's no international treaty? Well, this is where the common law comes into play. The common law provides these default rules that will apply really to any individual, any business firm, any activity in the absence of a specific federal regulation or international convention, whether it be property rights, contracts, or torts and injuries caused by the activity. So this is why the common law is one of the reasons why it's so important and relevant, worth reading today. Now that said, common law, right? The book by Oliver Wendell Holmes and the common law itself is a real difficult subject. It can take a lifetime to master. To give you an example, in law school, contracts is usually a two-semester course, right? Uh, Torts is usually a two-semester course. Product liability, uh, three semesters if you include products liability upper level. Property, generally a one semester course, but it can be multiple semesters if we include intellectual property rights as well. And so how can we distill all of this? You know, well, one way is by reading Oliver Wendell Holmes's book. But sometimes the concepts are difficult. And one of the most difficult concepts students have is, for example, the concept of negligence, which is a concept developed in the area of tort law or injury law. Why is negligence so important? Because it's a legal theory that applies in most cases to answer the question, when are you or when is a business firm legally responsible for someone else's injury? And what common law has developed over the years, over the centuries, is sort of a general rule, general standard, saying that everyone, generally speaking, has a legal duty, you know, I'll put this in plain English, uh, uh, a legal duty to take reasonable precautions to avoid foreseeable harms. Now, what's a foreseeable harm, right? What is a reasonable precaution? 
that's why you go to law school and that's why you study Oliver Wendell Holmes. You know, one of the great contributions of Oliver Wendell Holmes is to note that the over the centuries, the common law judges have developed a so-called objective test in determining, for example, uh, what is a foreseeable harm or what is a reasonable precaution to avoid a foreseeable harm. And that was F.E. Guerra Pujol at the University of Central Florida talking about teaching the common law. 202 is the area code for our program this evening. 748-8920 if you live in the east and central time zones. 202-748-8921 for those of you in the mountain and Pacific time zones. And if you can't get through on the phone line, still want to make a comment, try our text number. 202-748-8003. Please include your first name and your city if you would. Let's hear from David in New York City. Hi, David. Hi, Mr. Rosen, how do you think the judge, Mr. Holmes, would uh, decide on the abortion issue that the Supreme Court reversed recently? Thank you. David, how do you think he would have decided on the abortion issue? Uh, I'm not sure, sir. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Uh, you've asked the, the toughest of all questions, and I, I don't know either, but let me try to reason it through like Holmes. When it, when it came to Roe v. Wade as an initial matter, remember Holmes is very keen on deference to Democratic legislators. So he might have been moved by the argument that unless reasonable people of different perspectives think that a right is deeply rooted in tradition, that legislators should rule. However, as we've been talking about, he also cared a lot about precedent and thought that uh, the law was not just pure logic, but the accumulation of decisions that judges had made over time and also that society had come to accept. So there's a big debate on the Supreme Court right now about when you look at history and tradition, should you just look backward as the court did in uh, overturning Roe and saying that the right to abortion was not deeply rooted in, in tradition for most of American history? Or do you also look forward and ask what do people today think about early term abortions, for example? And there... Uh, just making this up, but Holmes might have been moved by evidence that uh, uh, today most people in most states don't restrict abortions before uh, before, uh, fetal uh, uh, quickening, as it's called, or at least a certain point in pregnancy. And and all of these considerations, which combine history, tradition, law, pragmatism, and empirical evidence, might possibly have gone into his complicated uh, deliberations. Well, some of the issues that Oliver Wendell Holmes worked on when he was on the Supreme Court included labor rights, free speech, i.e. fire in a crowded theater statement, which we'll get to, illegal searches, and the Espionage Act. Let's go to free speech, Mr. Rosen. Uh, dear C-SPAN friends who are watching, do yourself uh, give yourself a treat, and after the show is over, because we have to finish the conversation, read Holmes's great uh, opinion in the Abrams case. It's just a paragraph or two of constitutional poetry so beautifully expressed. And he says, time has upset many fighting faiths. And when men have come to believe more strongly than they believe their own principles, that uh, a particular principle has to be embraced only then they'll realize that we must uh, protect the thought we hate. And I'm, I'm mashing up a few great Holmes free speech opinions but that, um, that astonishing and inspiring idea that it's most 
certainly speech that we disagree with that has to be protected because men, as he puts it, will come to realize that the best test of truth is its ability to get itself accepted in the free marketplace of ideas. That's his metaphor of the marketplace of ideas, which relies on people who fundamentally disagree being able to make arguments and uh, the, and, and the best test of truth is, is the best idea, and only by having a fair fight can you allow truth to emerge. Re- remember, he's make, writing this at a time when the court is upholding the prosecution of people for sedition, which means criticizing the government, including Eugene V. Debs, the socialist candidate for president in 1920, who's running from a jail cell because he's been in prison for basically standing up on a soapbox and saying that this is a war for capitalists. I mean, we would consider it the mildest kind of protest today, but he's imprisoned under this extraordinarily illiberal law, which in fact is at, um, not the this part of it, but other parts of it are at the center of some of the current uh, pr- pr- document prosecutions about President Trump. But the law allowed you to be imprisoned um, if you said any speech that might have a bad tendency to obstruct recruitment. So you didn't have to tell people, you know, don't uh, enlist or you'll get shot, simply by saying this is a bad war might lead some people not to enlist. And the court uphold these prosecutions on the idea that any speech that could have a bad tendency should be suppressed. Holmes initially joined those decisions and, in fact, upheld the prosecution of some of these anti-war critics. But over uh, the summer of... uh, uh, in, in the early 1920s, he reads and he thinks, and in particular, he's moved by a law review article that the great Harvard law professor Zachariah Chafee wrote, where Chafee quotes against Holmes some of his earlier opinions, including that famous fire, even the most stringent protection for free speech wouldn't justify allowing a man to cry fire in a crowded theater, and convinces Holmes that what Holmes had been using to justify prosecution should be used to uh, prevent them. And he changes his mind. And a remarkable ability of his growth and open-mindedness and willingness to rethink his first premises. And at the same time, to make this amazing story even more exciting, so does his great colleague Louis Brandeis, who also comes to believe that the Espionage Act prosecutions are unconstitutional. And both Holmes and Brandeis write the greatest free speech opinions of the 20th century. For Holmes, it's his Abrams dissent, and for Brandeis, it's his glorious opinion in Whitney versus California, which we've just introduced at the National Constitution Center in a new First Amendment exhibit. We have Brandeis's handwritten notes on the Whitney case, um, loaned by Harvard Law School. It's so exciting. But back to Holmes. Read the... the and, and Brandeis has a different reason for protecting free speech, he emphasizes its contribution to democratic self-government and um, the importance of people uh, fulfilling themselves as citizens through deliberation. Holmes is focused on the marketplace of ideas. But that's Holmes's evolution. Um, it's spectacularly expressed, and, and his greatness must be centrally involved with his ability to distill in a few phrases of constitutional poetry, these immortal truths that continue to inspire us uh, today. And there's really nothing more inspiring that you can do for the First Amendment than read Holmes's dissent in Abrams. So you're talking about some cases in the early 1920s. Holmes wrote The Common Law in 1881. He served on the Supreme Court from 1902 to 1932. 
did, for the most part, his Supreme Court service jibe with what he wrote in the common law? It did, although because the common law is is complicated, um, so his jurisprudence was complicated. So you can't reduce the influence to a a bumper sticker. However, he did, in, in opinions at the end of his life, invoke the fact that the common law had traditionally refused to impose liability uh, in the uh, – um, it allowed liability even in the absence of moral blameworthiness, basically quoting the central thesis of the book. But the, the, the two central influences of the common law that Stephen Budiansky really helpfully identifies are first um, feeding this skepticism and humility that Holmes had that led him not to want to impose his own views from the court – and second, always an attentiveness to the pragmatic consequences of decisions, not necessarily to impose that as a judge, but to be alert about whether or not those practical consequences might lead legislators reasonably to embrace the results. So that is the connection between his um, t- two different subjects. One is how did judges make law in ancient times? And the second question is how should judges interpret the Constitution today? And that was the connection. Well, it was in 1950 that a movie came out called The Magnificent Yankee. It was about Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. Here's a portion. Magnificent is the word for Oliver Wendell Holmes, for Lewis Calhoun, and for the motion picture that bears the heroic title, The Magnificent Yankee. Here is a story as patriotic as the red, white, and blue as inspiring as the 4th of July, a story with dignity that comes only with real distinction. Who among us cannot but be thrilled as we hear the wit and the wisdom of the great dissenter as his voice comes echoing out of the dramatic past? That's not the way I read the law. This is a president and a justice of the Supreme Court. I have sense enough not to try to hit back, and so should he. President of the United States or not, he should keep his trap shut. Yes, Ernie. You might as well face it, son. Some men have it and some men don't, but you're no good without it. You've got to have fire in the belly. You understand? Yes, sir. Fire in the belly. Yes, sir. I'm sorry, sir, but no matter how I figure it, I can't get your income tax any lower. Oh, that's all right, my boy. I don't mind paying taxes. That's the way I buy civilization. We're getting on, you know. Here, let me take a look at you. Great guns, you, you're ancient. You must be all of 75, eh? Just about. Infant. Do you, do you know what I think when I see a pretty girl? No, what? Oh, to be 80 again. <laughs> Jeff Rosen, was Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. well-known enough in 1950 to make a movie about him? Well, he clearly was. I mean, I, I can't wait to go get the, get the, the, the streaming version. I mean, isn't that amazing, making a major biopic about a Supreme Court justice and having him be so well-known that you could call him the Magnificent Yankee. Now, the movie, I think, is jumping off of the uh, famous book, The Yankee from Olympus, which was a national bestseller. So by that point, he'd been lionized in literature. He'd been the subject of the bestseller. But it's pretty amazing and kind of wonderful to see our justices be such a central part of popular culture. Well... Contemporary justices, I'm thinking Ruth Bader Ginsburg, well-known, Antonin Scalia, well-known. Fair? 
Absolutely. And of course, they gave rise to the great Scalia Ginsburg opera and and much more. Uh, and Justice Ginsburg, of course, did have that great movie made after her. So maybe we are continuing in that great tradition. Let's hear from Jack in Davenport, Iowa. Jack, please go ahead with your question or comment. Hello. What would Holmes think about the Internet where people are, in fact, looking for rooms full of people so they can get them all stirred up and then they yell fire to stir up a lot of anger? Great question. So important. Uh, the question gets to the heart of Holmes's incitement test. And in the Abrams decision, he not only said that, uh, you know, speech um, – had to be strongly protected, but he endorsed a version of the test that Louis Brandeis would articulate that speech can only be restricted if it's intended to and likely to cause imminent violence. So it's not enough to say something that someone maybe possibly in the future might react badly to. It has to be intended to create imminent violence and the violence has to be imminent and serious. The Supreme Court embraced that test in the Brandenburg case in 1969, decades after Holmes and Brandeis articulated it, but you really are, you know, identified a, a central challenge of the Internet age. First of all, w w how can you measure whether a speech spoken in one place is both intended to and likely to cause violence somewhere else? Is, is the likelihood of incitement ripening into violence greater in a virtual age? And also, what should the Constitution do about technologies the founders didn't anticipate? Holmes has an amazing opinion that we haven't talked about in the Olmstead case where the Supreme Court upholds the use of wiretapping on the grounds that you need a physical trespass to trigger the Fourth Amendment and you can tap someone's phones without trespassing in their homes. Holmes dissents, uh, like Brandeis, he looks forward to the age of the uh, electronic uh, wires and insists the Constitution shouldn't be frozen with a particular technology. And he also says that it's very uncivilized for the government to spy on citizens and the framers wouldn't have liked that regardless of the technology. So he definitely would have been very uh, open to the challenge of translating the Constitution into an Internet age. And what he would have made of the incitement test, of course, uh, is uh, remains to be seen. We're going to test your knowledge here. A text came in. Holmes does not seem to be deferential in the ruling on the Schenck case. Please comment on Holmes' arguments and his position on Schenck v. U.S. 1919. Crucial question is very important. Why was it that at the end of his life, after having spent his decades essentially upholding laws that he liked and that he didn't like and almost never striking down anything as long as a reasonable person could disagree, uh, might, might disagree with him, he writes at the end of his life these libertarian free speech decisions that are among the greatest efforts to restrict government um, in all of American history. The reason he gives is the marketplace of ideas that basically ordinarily you assume that legislators have to have their will because unless majorities can wreak their desires into law, open violence will result. But an exception to that comes in cases where the channels of democracy themselves are threatened to be choked off. And if it's possible for a dominant majority to refuse to admit into the public square certain evidence, then you can't have a f properly functioning free marketplace of ideas. You can't be confident that good ideas will triumph over bad ones if people aren't able to hear all sides and make up 
their own minds. So th- there is a philosophical uh, and constitutional consistency to his lack of deference in First Amendment cases, even though he's so much more deferential in almost every other case. Well, we heard Lewis Calhoun imitating uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. Here is Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. in his own voice, speaking at Harvard in 1931, four years before his death. In this symposium, my part is only to sit in silence, to express one's feelings as the end draws near is too intimate a task. But I may mention one thought that comes to me as a listener in. The riders in a race do not stop short when they reach the goal. There is a little finishing canter before coming to a standstill. There is time to hear the kind voice of friends and to say to oneself, the work is done. But just as one says that, the answer comes, the race is over, but the work never is done while the power to work remains. The canter that brings you to a standstill need not be only coming to rest. It cannot be while you'll still live, but to live is to function. That is all there is in living. And so I end with a line from a Latin poet who uttered the message more than 1,500 years ago. Death, death clucks my ear and says, live, I am coming. That was Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. at the age of 90. Well, we've talked a little bit about Mr. Holmes in popular culture. There's a new play being developed here in Washington, D.C. about Mr. Holmes. Claire Cushman is Mm. the producer of Holmes, and Kevin Reese will be portraying Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. Ms. Cushman, where did the idea for doing a play about Oliver Wendell Holmes come from? Yes, it might seem strange for us to be producing a play about a justice who's been dead for almost a century, but it came to us via Todd Peppers, who is a legal historian and a Holmes superfan, and has spent quite a bit of time reading his letters and correspondence, and said to himself, the world really needs Holmes, and we need to get him out there, and we need people to know about him and hear his words. And so he brought a script to us at the Supreme Court Historical Society, and we said, why not? Let's do this play. What better way for people to understand about the history of the court and this extraordinary man? It wasn't tied to any particular anniversary. It was just there's no better time to have Holmes on stage than now. Kevin Reese, as the portrayer of Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., what did you learn about him? Well, I didn't know a lot about him when I first read the script. Um, But he is a fascinating uh, human being. The life leading up to his work as a Supreme Court justice is just as extraordinary and harrowing as his work as a justice. Um, Being, as as was mentioned before, being um, involved in the war, being wounded three times, having dysentery, almost died. I mean, he... uh, lived a life that was extraordinary, even up to the point at which he became a justice. Um, 
And so it was a, it's a real honor to uh, um, to look at his work and to uh, and the fact that this play uh, written by Todd Peppers is so much of his um, his writings, his essays, his letters, his decisions are in the play. That most of what's in the play is is Oliver Wendell Holmes's words, and, and that's an extraordinary thing. And I think it's a, a, a again as an actor, it's a real honor to be able to uh, to share those words with the world. Now, my understanding is that this is going to be shown one time. Is that correct, Claire Koshman? Yes, it will be. Uh, the world premiere will take place at Arena Stage on October thirtieth. But the performance is going to be filmed, and we will be taking that film on the road and screening it. So if anyone's interested, let me know. And if anyone, can anyone attend that performance? Is it sold out yet, October 30th at the arena? Yes, it's been sold out for a while, unfortunately. Well, well congratulations for you to you on that one. Claire Cushman is the producer, and Kevin Reese is the portrayer. The play is called Holmes. Thank you for spending a few minutes with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. So Jeff Rosen, quite a bit of popular culture around Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. And of course, you can't forget Green Acres with Oliver Wendell Douglas, huh. the, the head of that show. I mean, It's so exciting. First of all, how wonderful that Claire Cushman and Todd Peppers are doing that play. And I can't wait to... Uh, see it and learn about it. So great that it's rooted in his own words. And I just have to pause to say, weren't his words memorable and magnificent and so deep? He said at the very end of his life, to live is to function. That is all there is. And that really was his ultimate philosophy, that far from abstract ideals vindicating or giving purpose to life, it was simple industry and continuing to do the work that gave life meaning. And that amazing metaphor of how the horse at the end of the race comes to a little canter before stopping. And that, that was his canter. And then that mind-blowing quotation from the Latin poet, death calls and I'm coming, stay I am coming. Uh, all in that amazing accent. Uh, can't wait to see the play. Timothy in Ashtabula, Ohio. Good evening to you. Yes. Good evening, sir. I have a question. Um, I was a former college teacher, and I was part-time for such a long time, uh, mainly because uh, part-timers cannot unionize uh, collective bargain. I guess it assumes that there's an equal relationship between employer and employee, which I don't really think that's the case, because an, an employer can fire a, you know, an employee at any moment, at least in the colleges, for, for no reason, really. But um, it's just not fair, because you become a full-time part-timer, which is like, I call it the Walmart syndrome. So, you know, we were in colleges now today, a lot of part-timers, they're depending on part-timers. And it's, it's, it's really sad because uh, really good people who should be full-time cannot be part full-time because uh, they, uh, there's, no, there's no promotional track. They're just, they're just destined to be part-timers. And well, let's, let's get Jeffrey Rosen to respond to the uh, first part of your question. A employers, employees? A crucial, central question for the Holmes Court is one of the big issues we haven't talked about yet, so I'm so glad you raised it, which is labor rights. And this is a time when the Taft Court is vigorously anti-labor and is upholding things like injunctions against strikes and efforts to curb the power of the new labor movement on the grounds that it violates the liberty and property rights protected by the 14th Amendment. And Chief Justice Taft is a foe of labor rights. 
and Holmes and Brandeis dissent. Holmes is much more pragmatic about this as he is about everything. And far from accepting formalistic ideas about an equality of bargaining between labor and capital, he thinks that any combination of people is entitled to organize in order to try to defend their interests in a fair fight and therefore wants to uphold uh, labor rights to strike down injunctions that prevent them from organizing. He's on the losing side of many of those cases, but his uh, dissents are vindicated by the New Deal court um, decades later. Text message from Seth in Minneapolis. Did Holmes ever express any internal conflict about his attempts to square a pragmatic interpretation of the law with deference to laws instituted by the majority when clearly their lines of reasoning he didn't support, let alone were predicted on morally or ethically thin ice. Lot there, Jeff Rosen. And, and, and the answer is yes. He almost took a perverse pleasure in upholding laws that he didn't like. And it, we talked about those free speech cases where he was so contemptuous of the puny, foolish simpletons who misguidedly embraced communism, which he very much repudiated. Or the, the, the Lochner case was also a kind of perverse Holmesian irony. He says the 14th Amendment doesn't enact Herbert Spencer's so- social statics, but he himself, in fact, is an enthusiastic social Darwinist uh, who has contempt for the progressive maximum hour and minimum wage laws, which he thinks are meant uh, to sort of uh, protect the, the the interests of labor but are unlikely to be effective. So in, in that sense, but it's it's such a good question because it, you know, it raises the question, a pragmatist, as the question suggests, might decide what he thought the right answer was in every case based on good policy. But for Holmes, pragmatism led him not to do that, basically to say that's a decision for other people unless the legislators are transgressing clearly articulated constitutional rights that everyone would embrace. And that did lead him, as I said, to <clears throat> uphold a whole lot of laws that he liked and a whole laws, a lot of laws that he didn't like. He basically upheld almost everything until it got to the First Amendment decision. But that was the way he reconciled the two impulses. Patricia Phoenix, good evening. Pat- Hello? Patricia Phoenix, good evening. Go ahead, please. Hello? Please go ahead. Oh, well. Uh, tell you what, we're going to have to lose. No, Patri- Are you here? Go ahead and make your question. That they called me, which they still have not called me. Okay, so- Patricia, we're going to hang up on you now. We appreciate you calling in. I apologize that we weren't able to connect functionally. Well, 1881 is when the common law came out, but there are other books on the Library of Congress's list of 100 books that shaped America during this era, 1850 to 1900, roughly. Here are some of those books. Henry David Thoreau wrote about nature and solidarity in 1854 with his book, Walden. In 1855, the first edition of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass was published. Little Women, Louisa May Alcott's novel about four sisters living in Massachusetts, was published in 1868. Horatio Alger Jr.'s Mark the Match Boy, released in 1869. Sisters Catherine Beecher and Harriet Beecher Stowe released a domestic guide with The American Woman's Home in 1869. And here are more books from the Library of Congress's list of 100 books that shaped America. Mark Twain's novel Huck Finn was published in 1884. 
Poems by Emily Dickinson was published in 1890. Frederick Jackson Turner's The Frontier in American History was published in 1893. And finally, The Red Badge of Courage by Stephen Crane was released in 1895. It was set during the Civil War. All of those books are available on the website, cspan.org slash books that shaped America. You can see the entire list that the Library of Congress came up with there. Next call is Stephen in West Palm Beach, Florida. Stephen, go ahead, please. Yes, hi. Can you hear me? We're listening. Yes, hi. Uh, Mr. Rosen, what you're calling, and I'm sure many lawyers call Mr. Holmes' pragmatism, is what I call sedition. Uh, I'm wondering, for example, in a, in a, and it doesn't surprise me, I didn't, I didn't realize until now, or I'd forgotten, uh, that uh, Theodore Roosevelt was the one that appointed him to the Supreme Court, because uh, Mr. Roosevelt didn't seem to have too much concern about the Constitution either. And I th- I'm sure you know what I mean. Um, I just I was saying that, that one of the things I was just thinking, there are other people in the modern-day Supreme Court who have similar types of approaches. And two of the most recent ones were, number one, Anthony Kennedy, and number two, David Souter. I'm wondering how Mr. Holmes would feel about the jurisprudence of those justices. And just as an aside, one other one that might come to, to bear in mind, because I've been learning a lot about the liberal world order and liberalism in general. How would Mr. Holmes feel about uh, the jurisprudence of the, uh, of the, uh, uh, the German jurist during the Nazi period, Carl Schmidt? Thank you, Stephen, in West Palm Beach. Pragmatism, sedition, Anthony Kennedy, David Souter. It's an important question, and I take it from your question that uh, you're you're voicing uh, an objection that many conservative constitutionalists would have to a pragmatic approach. And you're quite right that Theodore Roosevelt was not a believer in the checks and balances and separation of powers of the of the founders constitution he called for judicial decisions to be overturned by majority vote he viewed the president as a steward of the people who channeled popular um, impulses as opposed to william howard taft who was a more constrained uh, hamiltonian president and uh, in all these respects um, neither roosevelt nor holmes believed in strict construction of the text of the Constitution in any formalistic way. So you raise an important point. Uh, I, I think Justice Kennedy and Justice Souter had different approaches. Justice Kennedy was more a fan of the natural law approach that Holmes also rejected. Justice Kennedy believed that there were certain basic rights. At the core of liberty is the right to define one's own conception of meaning of the universe and the mystery of human life, said Justice Kennedy in upholding Roe v. Wade. That was a kind of argument about self-evident natural rights that come from God or nature, not from government, that Holmes was, was not a fan of. But Justice Souter is a good analog because he was more of a common law constitutionalist. He did believe that precedent was the most important way of constraining judges. He he thought that judges should take measured motions and not broad, sweeping gestures. And in that sense, um, he had a certain pragmatism. But I will say it's, it's not the case that conservatives on the court 
are any more devoted to deference to legislatures than liberals are. Remember, the original justification for the conservative strict constructionist or originalist movement was that law should be made in legislatures, not in courts. But now both conservative and liberal justices are embracing a form of judicial engagement, as they call it, where they are perfectly happy to strike down lots of laws if it clashes with their vision of the Constitution. Holmes was different. His tradition, and this is important to put on the table at this point in our discussion, of bipartisan judicial deference, which had been embraced in the 20th century by acolytes like Felix Frankfurter or Byron White, uh, who was appointed by Justice uh, by, by uh, President Kennedy, and even by Justice Scalia during his early years, um, doesn't have any fans on the court today. So the antithesis between pragmatists and strict constructionism doesn't always point to deference, and Holmes was very much in favor of deference. And we've been talking this evening on Books That Shaped America about the common law by Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., if you have a book that you think should be on the Books That Shaped America list, go to the website, cspen.org slash Books That Shaped America. Viewer input right up at the top. Click on there. Two easy steps. Send us a video. Tell us which book you think should be on the list. Here are some of the submissions we've received. Hi, my name is Kat, and I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. A book that I think shaped America is The Giver by Lois Lowry, because I think it's a really good example of how we need to take into consideration the experience of others and the experiences from the past and use it to spread love and kindness and try to make a difference for the better. My name is Todd. I'm from Nokomis, Florida. I think the book that shaped America was Donald Trump's Art of the Deal. It brought him to stardom, made him a, a name, and ultimately that celebrity led to him being one of the best presidents we've ever had. The book I'd like to uh, mention is Atlas Shrugged by Anne Rand. Uh, this has been out for a long, long time, but uh, Anne Rand uh, explains and Talks about an extreme case of the government coming in and taking over businesses and uh, the life of uh, most uh, most Americans. And it uh, shows a rebellion by business. And very interesting book. Hi, my name is Colleen. I'm from Framingham, Massachusetts. And a book that I think is shaping America is Feed by M.T. Anderson. I think this book is shaping America because it deals with the intimate nature of our use of technology and social media and how it's kind of interfering with our ability to make genuine human connections with one another. Hi, my name is Elise. I'm from Austin, Texas. And the book that I think shaped America is The Sound and the Fury by William Faulkner. The reason that I chose this book is because it really does deliver a poignant take about class in America and in our society, and that's why I think it shaped America, because it's able to tell a tale of human suffering, um, regardless of class or gender, but, and it's something that we can all relate to, no matter where we come from. My name is Cordelia, and I'm from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The book I think shaped America is Love Monster and the Last Chocolate. The reason I picked this book is because it lets people know that your friends care about you. And if you want to join Cordelia and send in your book that shaped America, go to cspan.org slash books that shaped America, viewer input right up at the top. Jeffrey Rosen, we have one minute left. We're talking about the common law. What's its impact today? The central thesis of the common law, that law is not shaped by logic but experience and is a mix of historical traditions and contemporary needs 
very much has defined debates about law throughout the 20th and 21st century. It's influenced legal realists. It's influenced law and economics. It's at the center of our current debate between pragmatists and strict constructionists on the court today. In addition to all that, though, and we have this is my takeaway from this wonderful conversation, Holmes inspires all of us to be lifelong learners and readers. The, the common law book was produced by his rigorous reading and attempt to synthesize all of American and English legal history through his disciplined reading. He's doing this until he, in his 90s, um, learning and growing and adding to his list. And that's what this program is doing. And uh, C-SPAN viewers Keep the light going by continuing to read in the spirit of Oliver Wendell Holmes. Jeffrey Rosen is president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and he has been our guest for the last hour and a half on Books That Shaped America. Appreciate your time. And thank you for listening in and for sending in your questions. This episode was produced by Lana Ulrich and Bill Pollack and the great C-SPAN team. It was engineered by Bill Pollack. Research was provided by Samson Mastashare. Check out our full lineup of programs starting next year and register to join us virtually at constitutioncenter.org. In the meantime, catch up on previous programs in the media library. Recommend the show to friends, colleagues who are eager for constitutional debate over the holidays. And goodness knows there is plenty of need for light and learning in these challenging times. And if you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And always remember, as the holidays approach, we're a private nonprofit. Your generosity is so meaningful. A donation of any amount, $5 or $10 or more for the holidays and New Year would be so greatly appreciated. Please donate at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate or become a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership. Warm wishes as the holidays approach. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.